Now, let's be honest, folks. How much do you miss the world of Formula 1? Here at the Inside Line F1 podcast in Pitch to Podium, that answer is quite a fair bit. And also, we miss the people who brought us the sport of Formula 1 live on TV, the voices of Formula 1, as we'd like to call them. And Kunal and I have been lucky enough to be joined by so many great broadcasters. And this episode is no different because at least there's a bit of a personal bias here for me. Here's, Here's someone who I literally grew up watching and I'm not trying to make him feel old right now, but it's someone who I literally grew up watching when I started watching Formula One. And I'm so lucky that we've got, well, someone from the original checkered flag and the race day shows on Star Sports. But Kunal's going to tell you more about him because I think that's something that's really special, Kunal, isn't it? There's a, there's a long list of things that you've got to mention now, haven't you? Absolutely. I think the introduction is going to be a 15 minute long one right but yeah. <laughs> uh, on a more serious on a more serious note without trying to you know uh, keep uh, it uh, under wraps uh, we've got matthew marsh with us on uh, this show as a guest voices of f1 has has been doing fantastically well as as a series on our channels and matthew is our latest uh, guest this weekend and you know when i was thinking of an introduction uh, for matthew a mm. few things that came to my mind first is he was one of the first few people who I knew f- by face, at least when I first attended my race at as an accredited media person, right? And ever friendly, gave a smile, started talking. And then, of course, we realized our links with Star Sports and the several attempts we made to bring back race day and checkered flag to Star Sports over the years. And uh, But that's my personal link. And, you know, Matthew, as as we all know, uh, he's a man who actually wears multiple uh, hats or multiple helmets, as we'd call it in the world of motorsport. So he's been a racer. He's raced in Le Mans. He was the Porsche Cup Asia champion. We all know him as a broadcaster and commentator, especially, you know, our viewers from Asia would remember him from his work with uh, Fox Sports in Asia. Uh, he's a deal maker, And this is a fun part, which we will, you know, sort of mm. dig in a little more about. So he has worked uh, with JMI in the world of uh, sports business. It's a very, very well-known agency. Uh, The full form is just Marketing International. And it is an agency that Zach Brown had started way back in time when he actually became the dealmaker Zach Brown. This is before his McLaren days. So Matthews worked fairly closely with Zach Brown as well. And then, of course, he started the Hong Kong team Le Mans, uh, his co-driver, uh, you know, in his broadcast has been Alex Jung, the former Formula One driver, and Paula Malai Ali, who's who's been very, very famous within the, the Asian motorsporting circles as well. And uh, yes, and now, uh, you know, Matthew's got his own motorsport consultancy company that, you know, connects brands uh, with Formula One and Formula E teams. So, Matthew, thank you for being patient while, you know, I read through my notes of, of introducing you. And thank you so much for joining us uh, on, on, our, on our channel. It's, it's fantastic to be here. I don't know who you were talking about just now, but he sounds fascinating. <laughs> and I just hope that the viewers and listeners aren't going to be disappointed with uh, having to listen to me uh, on the show. But no, more seriously, it's really great to have the chance to talk to you. And I appreciate uh, that very kind introduction. And Matthew, first things first, we've got to talk about two things. Firstly, behind you, there's an incredible collection of books. Now, the last time I saw, there's one amazing book of Joe Ramirez right there, along with a couple of others. Mm. Which one are you reading right now, firstly? In the off-season, that is. Yes, this is a good question, actually. Um, The the book I've just finished Mm -hmm. reading was uh, Louder, the Morris Hamilton biography 
which I recommend highly. Um, of course, it's Morris Hamilton. There aren't very many writers in motorsport better than Morris. Um, and it's a, it's a really nice book. Obviously, the topic of Nicky Lauda is one that's been covered before in different ways. And this one is a book that came out after Nicky's passing. Mm. And, is a, it, and, and, and therefore, it's an important book to have. It is a bookend, if you like, because it includes the fact that Nicky passed away and, and the thoughts of his working colleagues and friends after that time. So it's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. I learned a lot of new things, which is important. I was entertained, laughed out loud a few times, giggled, and just kept thinking, what a guy, Nicky Lauda. He's just such a guy, wasn't he? No, exactly. And which one would you recommend to all, I mean, all of us, basically, because we've been scratching around all over the internet, trying to find race rewinds and whatnot. I actually ended up finishing the Enzo Ferrari biography. Which one else do you have lined up after Lauda now? Well, there's another book. I'm not Uh sure. Actually, I I spent some time, I should say that I spent some time with my daughter over Christmas. Oh, putting vinyl wraps on books because otherwise they get a bit dusty mm. and dirty and whatever. So that's a little, that's a little tip for the, yeah, anyway, whatever. Um, what can I show you that I did? i tell you what's another great book, which people might not know about. Um, and it's unusual. My it's called defeat. My Greatest Defeat. Correct, yeah. Have you read this? It's on my wish list. <laughs> yeah, it's a good book. It's a great book. First of all, I'm a big fan of Will. I really enjoyed working side by side with him um, in the past. He's a I really enjoy his, his, his work. And, um, the, the, in a way, the the book is 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 Will, which is thinking differently about things, looking at them from a different angle. He's a great, you know, general broadcaster and presenter. Mm. But the fact that he thought about defeat when generally in sport we're thinking about victory. Um, and I had the pleasure of having uh, Will on the Go F One show. He's very kind to give us some of his time when he was in um, Saudi Arabia mm. before the Grand Prix. And uh, because one of the key parts, of course, about twenty twenty one was that whilst there was going to be a great champion there was going to be also a great defeat because both of the drivers deserved so we talked about that so that's uh, yeah i definitely recommend will's book there's so many great books actually the other thing i would recommend people to do is what i did a decade or so ago which was to buy some books that are that you can buy secondhand for you know essentially nothing um about people like mario andretti james hunt the older nikki lauda books and there's one which isn't cheap and it's not as easy to get but there's a book called faster about or by Jackie Stewart. I'll see if I've got it. I can just. Is it all right if I step out every now and again? 100%. You're yeah. Trim this. And, and, and yeah, for yeah, folks, if, like if you can't see what's happening right now, if you're listening on the audio version, Matthew's got, I don't know, what is it? A, a, a four row library of sorts? How many rows and columns is it? That, that is huge. But I tell you what, my, my actually, the inspiration for books was Peter Windsor, is mm. Peter Windsor, the great journalist and broadcaster himself, and of course, team manager at exactly. Williams in the. Mansell era and so on. And um, as he was Peter, I should give a lot of credit because he guided me on the buying of, of a lot of books. So this one, which is rec- recommend highly, not a, it's great color, of course, as well. Uh, what a color. cover that is, yeah. Faster. Have you read this book? Not quite, unfortunately. Okay, see if you can get a copy. Uh-huh. It'll make your life better. Um, mine signed by the great man. Oh, no, no, that's quite so. No, and you, actually, you're, you've already made me the, envious, Matthew. That's like five minutes into the episode. Come on. Well, I'm going to do my best to continue doing that. That's what I'm here for, right? But when Jackie signed this book for me, and Jackie's one of my heroes, mm-hmm. he said, he made a comment, because Jackie's very, he's on the point about anything to do with com- commerce. And he said, I just sign, right? Because if I put anybody's name in it, it reduces the value of the oh. book. Because it's, cause it's, you know, I said, no, no, I'm not going to sell. I want it to be to Matthew because then I can show off to one day. 
I'm going to be interviewed by Sumilan Kanal and I can show off this sign to me. Um, the reason this book is great, actually, is that it's written in 1970. I believe, maybe I've got my facts slightly wrong. 70 or 71? 70, I wow. think. Yeah, 70. Mm. It's a diary, mm. basically. And the principle of the book, which he describes at the beginning, is that everything you read here is what I wrote at the time. And things have been removed, but nothing has been added. And that's quite important because it means that he would write about his emotions. And, of course, 1970 was the year when we lost Bruce McLaren Correct. in that testing accident at Goodwood, yeah. his best friend, Jochen Rint, at Monza. So it's a dramatic year to be writing a diary. And, of course, there are things that are removed for sure, but the emotion cuts through. It's a fantastic book. Anyway, oh, man. long answer to a short oh, question. Man. Probably <laughs> we're expecting. No. Already, I've added three books into my wish list, and and, and yeah, I suppose there's going to be more coming soon. But uh, you pointed yeah. out something very interesting right there, Matthew. You mentioned about defeat, and that's been something that's been going around quite a fair bit since uh, I don't know what is it, December the twelfth. It's been around a couple of months now. It feels <laughs> like, or maybe a century, considering how slow time is going. But Abu Dhabi, Massey, thats the whole discussion we're having lately about. Well, are things right or not? And we have seen a few new reports come up, and that's something that I want to know your take on. Uh, is it is it done yet for Massey? What, what is it like? I mean, it seems like a bit of a showdown. Either Massey goes to Lewis. Well, what's your take on that now? Well, I think that it's clear mm-hmm. that it was wrong. Yeah. As it, by which I mean, I think it's clear that that what happened at that moment in the race was wrong and incorrect by the rules and the way they've always been applied. There's no doubt about that. I think I maybe I should have started by saying what made it exciting was that either of the two drivers, Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen, would, would be worthy champions. They're both yeah. worthy champions, aren't they? And so that's what made it such a fantastic uh, finale. We've had times, haven't we, in the past where you're thinking, oh, gosh, I hope the other guy doesn't <laughs> win because it'd be a bit, and you know, without mentioning any names. Um, but so that was what made it so dramatic. Then... You know, just to be clear, because there has been a lot of noise on social media of people saying that Formula One media people have not been calling out that it was wrong. And, I, and I've often felt that every Formula One journalist I've seen and TV broadcaster I've seen has said it was wrong. Maybe if, I mean, but most of, certainly, you know. There's no doubt about it was wrong. And, but I think what the, what the professionals have been saying, trying to say, is it was wrong, but it's happened. It's a bit like a car crash. Mm. You know, you can say that that person was at fault, but you can't get the bend. You know, you can't get the dent out of the metal. The dent is in the metal. And so, let me add a couple of things, maybe that people haven't thought about or talked about. I think uh, the decision Michael Massey made in the heat of the moment was disastrous, no doubt. I think that we need to think about his position, which is of a man with an enormous amount of responsibility and a certain amount of authority, with a small team of people, many of whom uh, are sort of either temporary or kind of race by race. He doesn't have, didn't have for the latter half of the season, a deputy because his deputy had retired, nothing dramatic, just had retired. Um, Michael himself I've been trying to find out the details of this, but you know, he's an Australian and he, you can't travel in and out of Australia. So he's been out of his home country f- by the time of Abu Dhabi for what, nine months? I don't know, 10 months. I, I can't imagine he got back in the summer. So some months living out of a suitcase or a temporary. So 
And every week, you know, it was dramatic. It was difficult enough being a journalist, right? Mm. Let alone if you were, you know, Michael Massey, who let's not forget, one minute he's up in the race control trying to direct a race and having people in his ears. And the next minute you see him on the racetrack, sweeping the concrete dust away, checking the barriers. So he had way too much on his plate. And if he had been a ship's captain or an airline pilot and a, a similar disaster had befallen under his watch, we would have quite quickly said, who's the chief executive officer of the company mm. that allowed this executive to be in a position to make that disastrous decision? I think that's to me, is much more important. He made a mistake. He's a human. It's bound to happen. What isn't acceptable really is that we didn't imagine it was going to happen. Um, mm. So I think that's, the, that's one point I'd add. The second point, since I'm on a roll, is that the, I think whatever was going to happen you, as I say, like the car crash, you couldn't change the result yeah. because if it had gone to appeal, and I've spoken to a couple of lawyers who understand motorsport on this, you know, the general view was it goes to appeal and, it, it, and let's say it's found that the, the rules were not applied correctly. What's the, remed- what's the remedy? Mm-hmm. Now, some people have been saying, well, the remedy is it goes back a lap. But the problem, as I understand it from a legal perspective, is any remedy you come up with in a case needs to fit similar circumstances. So it was convenient in this situation that the problem in Abu Dhabi was the misapplication of the rules in the final mm. laps, or in fact, the final two laps, right, yeah. basically, essentially. But what happens if it had happened in the middle of the race? You can't clip out a lap. You can't say the rest of the race is okay, but just not that lap. So the likelihood would have been that if if it had been taken to its final uh, appeal situation, the race would have just been made null and void, and therefore Max would anyway have been world champion. So I think that, that's something we need to kind of bear in mind, right? And it, it, It's a championship of 20 one races and not one. Wow, we no, no. That's a different way to look at it. Uh, I, I love the fact that you actually ended up sp- speaking to lawyers about that and having that take. Because seriously, I, I didn't think. I thought we covered everything here on the podcast, but no, that that's another way of looking at it, which is so awesome. And also the fact that Massey hasn't quite been at home and these sort of stuff. Ah, my word, my word. Uh, well, fascinating. So let really. me add a couple uh-huh. of things. Do we do we think that? that Michael Massey or the FIA uh-huh. are in any way favoring one driver or team or another. Do we think that or not? Uh, not as such, uh, at least from as far as I can tell. It's not favoring. It's no. just that they're conflicted in terms of what uh, – I mean, what's the general framework? They're, they're bouncing, or, bouncing around quite a fair bit. And uh, sometimes it favors one team, sometimes the other. It's just that they're not quite sure. It seems like at least of what is the one way of doing things, which is strange because Formula 1 – is a sport where the regulations are so black and white technically, sporting-wise, things just seem to be so grey. And Kunal, what's your, I know I'm taking over the show here, but it's, it's, it's a habit. What's your view? <laughs> you know, I, I have to completely agree with what you said about Massey having so much responsibility. And uh, my feeling is that the FIA will do what it takes to try and keep him in that role at least for the near future, because mm-hmm. by letting go of him, they will admit to uh, the fact that, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi was a complete mess and mm. a failure in terms of rules. So for the optics, it's not good. And like we were, you know, while we were preparing for the show, it's going to be whether Massey stays or Hamilton stays. And that's typically not the uh, not the equation that we all would have probably thought of. And this is, of course, assuming that Lewis Hamilton's, you know, asking for Massey to go, depending on which tabloid you read, right? <laughs> so my, my reading is, is, is that, uh, yes, they were... Uh, uh, the rules weren't applied correctly, and uh, 
didn't fit within any of the frameworks that the FIA has set. And uh, to 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 extrapolate on what you said, you know, about are they favoring a team? I don't think so because you know, going race by race, there was always one or the other faction of fans saying, hey, we were not done with well. So what's happened is both teams and drivers were uh, disadvantaged by the mm. ridiculous application of rules, if you know that's a fairly harsh word to use. So I don't think they necessarily wanted a different winner, like social media has been saying that the FIA wanted a new winner and you know they didn't want Lewis to win because you know they want to protect Michael's legacy and and you know all those you know things that people dream about in the middle of the night. So I, I just think it just <laughs> so happened to be uh, that the indecisions or the or the inconsistencies in decision making ended up on the second last lap or the last race of the season and sort of mm. just swung the world championship one way or the other. Good timing, though. And, and, and I, so I agree with you. And I would say if I was, if I was Lewis, I would probably be saying, well, I, I think I would, I would make the mistake of talking. And, of course, he's done the brilliant thing of not. It's just been fantastic. I think what a great, what a great judgment he has made there. Um, but anyway, what, if you were, let's say, Mercedes being asked, I would be saying... Whatever comes out of this, we need to make sure we keep Michael Massey as the race director. Mm. Because he is now extremely experienced about making mistakes in high-pressure scenarios because he's done it. And the point is, we know that. We know, I mean, we, there are books, countless books and probably podcasts about how you learn. And you learn generally by making a mistake. So why would we want to get rid of the one guy who actually now has experience of running from run races and making mistakes. He's a human. He makes mistakes. And I would say if I was him, I, if, if I was in, I'd say we, I would set up and say, we're going to keep him because this is the best guy we've got, got for the job. And he's not going to be, you know, he's, yeah, he's got dirt under his fingernails. He knows what he's doing. He, 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 I think he made an error through good intentions, hmm. you know, there's, and, and that's, I would like to think that I do that. I think we all do it. And uh, catastrophic mistake, let's not be, you know, to be clear. <laughs> but he didn't do it on purpose, did he? He didn't do it because he was trying to favor Max or he was, you know, in any way biased. No, I don't think he just made a mistake. And and uh, I would say we need to keep that guy and we need to keep him close as possible to the top because he knows what he's doing now. Tell you what, it was such a dramatic circumstance that people on Reddit were dreaming of circumstances like Mick Schumacher interfering on the last lap and saying, this is for my dad's legacy and whatnot. It's the internet, <laughs> folks. This, this sort of fun stuff happens. And who would have thought that we would see something even more dramatic than that in Abu Dhabi, right? But speaking of dramatic, That's true. We, we have seen quite a fair bit of dramatic races covered by you guys, Matthew, on, on Fox and Star. And now I have to bring back this sort of nostalgia bit, right? And and I know you won't like it because you won't like to be called as someone who's been around for quite a while. But thing is, it just adds more experience under your belt. And and the fact that that Star Sports crew was so memorable for everyone back here, at least in India, it, what was it like for you guys just working on it for so many years? And that's the big question. Why did it end so suddenly last year? It, it was extremely shocking and sad wow. to hear that. It, it appeared to be sudden, I think, for, for, for hmm. viewers. And, but I think the important thing to understand is that it was nothing to do with Formula One or Fox Sports Asia mm. or in or, or indeed the Fox Networks group that it was called in Asia. It was a, you know, there was that uh, the Rupert Murdoch business had been 
split up mm. and Disney bought apart. And then, you know, da, da, da. so they end up owning a business that they hadn't necessarily created. And then they were looking at this business and deciding what to do with it. And they decided to close, I think it was thir- 12 or 13 channels um, for business reasons. And that happens every day of the week. They would be, it would be wrong if they weren't thinking about it as a mm. business. And you can't, you know, you, again, you can't argue that closing cable channels in sport is, is wrong because it's happening all over the world. So they made a business decision, which I'm sure was well thought through. 13, 12 or 13 channels were closed, of which one was Fox Sports. A number of sports lost their distribution uh, one of which was Formula One. And, and you know, I was one of the guys on the show together with obviously Paul and Alex in the main. So um, it was unfortunate. But um, I think about it, I think about uh, 1993 when it all started. Yeah. And, I, and I called, uh, they were based in Hong Kong at the time. I called the studio or the office and asked for Jonathan Green, who if you, you might remember. Do you remember Jonathan Green? He was the first presenter. And he was on his own in the studio and I rang and asked to speak to him and people often don't know that presenters often are producers, you know, and they, they work in the week producing and creating the show and doing whatever. And then they put some makeup on and, you know, a shirt and whatever and do that. Um, And I said, hi, I'm Matthew Marsh. Silence. Um, (laughs) I thought you might need a guest on the, on the show. And you can imagine him thinking, who is this guy and why would I want a guest? Anyway, we met for a, uh, curry if i remember correctly and got on famously and a year later um i was invited to be his guest on the show and that was the beginning of a of a long run of of doing that it was great same because i th- i think um if you if you love a sport and if you can participate in it obviously mm. that's the that's fantastic and if you can't participate in it uh, on the field then uh, being involved as a journalist in some way as we all are um, on this show is is great because you have to pay attention, you have to do your research, you know, and you have to think about your opinions, and that's that's what I loved about uh, about doing the work with Fox. But the funny part is Matthew, because uh, I couldn't quite find out any information before that, uh, and and the interesting part is you started off when it was Prime Sports, then became Star, then Fox, and whatnot. But before Prime, uh, how did it all come about? I know the story that the way you got into motorsport was very interesting, but you shifted towns, and there was this car racing store. Uh, around there that you got hooked onto and there's so many people you met. But from that bit, how did it all transition to getting here to to the broadcast side? Because that is something that we've never quite known as much. Well, when you when I when I explain things mm-hmm. When I when I hear people explain a, their story and you uh, and and uh, you know any life story explanation, uh-huh. it, it sounds very well planned and it sounds logical, <laughs> often. and it's because the things that aren't relevant get dropped out of the story. Yeah. So the first point to make is most of what happened was random, and most of what happened was really a case of asking for something or asking about something and then being ready to do something which wasn't particularly exciting at the time. So what I mean by that is that I had um, met Peter Collins, who was uh, at the time the team principal, I guess you'd call it, of the Benetton mm-hmm. team that that was now the uh, Renault team. And uh, at Grand Prix Models, the model shop that you mentioned, he was a customer, he came in and I, I just said, and it won't surprise you, I just said the first thing that came into my head, you've been hearing that on the TV for the last 20 years, and I said something like, oh, I've been thinking about starting a fan magazine about your team. I don't know where that came from, <laughs> but I said it. And he said, that's a great idea. Come and see me. Here's my name card. Uh-huh. So now I've got Peter Collins' name card and an invitation to the team. And, of course, I started a fan magazine. And 
you know, then I'm suddenly, then I've got something, right? And I'm, and I'm writing about it. And I had entered the Sir William Lyons Award, which is a journalistic competition. Mm-hmm. And so I, I you know, I, and I enjoyed writing, da, 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 da. So I was doing all that. And then, um, and I, 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 I was at Brands Hatch at some point, and I saw Brian Jones, who um, sadly passed away about a, a year ago, the great Brian Jones, the commentator at Brands Hatch. Mm-hmm. This would be in the late 80s, I suppose. And I had said, oh, hello, Brian. I, same sort of thing. I want to be a commentator. And he said, well, those are the stairs. Come up to the commentary booth sometime. What a great thing for a man to say. And so I did. And and he then, ah, oh, here's a young man. And tell me who you are and what are you thinking? And there I am suddenly speaking to the crowd at Brands Hatch, who probably again <laughs> thought, who is this guy? And that it went on to then I would I would, I would would do a little bit of commentary at Brands Hatch. Um, and you again, same thing. You have to pay attention. You're making notes. Hmm. You're I had... I had um, uh, I'd written to a number of publications, Motoring News. The editor at the time was David Tremaine, of course, fantastic, one of the most famous F1 writers to this day. I think he writes to the Daily Telegraph in the UK. And I wrote, I forgot the letter in my filing cabinet. And I, I looked at it the other day and I wrote to David and he wrote back and he said, thanks for your letter. And as I said on the phone, we don't have any jobs. So I was obviously asking for a job again. <laughs> but if you'd like to come and meet the guys come, how about, I think it was Tuesday, July the 6th, which is, they, they would have put the newspaper to bed. Come and join us in the pub around the corner from the office. We'll be having lunch, having finished, you know, obviously worked overnight Monday night to put the thing to bed. And what a wonderful thing to do to invite a young person to come and do that. Mm. So, of course, I went along and I met David Tremaine. I met Alan Henry. I met um, a, a bunch of people that that remained friends. David is a is a lifelong friend now. And, um and all of these things, again, it was, none of this was planned. None of this was organized. But it then meant that at, when I was, if you like, when I approached Jonathan Green, perhaps, I mean, because this, this question is about broadcasting, so what have you done before? I was able to say, oh, I work for the Benetton Formula One team, which is a, not entirely accurate, but you know what I mean? I did commentary. <laughs> I did I did da 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 And I had, because I'd, I'd gone and done, you know, what you have to do if you want to get into motorsport, as you know, mm. is start at the very bottom. You go to a cold, wet, windy Lydon Hill, and you write four lines about the, the the you know the lowest race on the card, and that starts you off, and you don't get a byline, you don't get paid, and you do that, and you build you know you you you, get, you build your muscles, and um, one day I was lucky enough to get on the telly. Wow, we and and times seriously have changed from back then, right? Considering how it's all. Well, wow, wow, that'll take me a second to think about it, but it's crazy how it all <laughs> it all came together. But correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew. After your broadcasting and journalism career started, that's when you began racing, or, or was there some inkling before that as well? Because, as we mentioned at the start, you, you've raced at Le Mans. You are, and that's something that we pointed out before we started recording. At least at one point, you were the Porsche Carrera Cup champion of Asia, 2004, that is, the year yeah. after I was born. Crazy. Yeah. But, uh, and, and there's more. You raced at Daytona as well, if I'm not mistaken. There's, did that happen yeah. after you started broadcasting? Or was it, was it some it, sort of karting before? It did. Early on? It did. Uh, no, I didn't do karting as a kid. I started in Formula Ford when I was 18 mm-hmm. and did a year and a half before I realized I wasn't good enough. Oh. I probably realized straight away I wasn't good enough, but before I kind of realized this is not a good use of, you know, like diminishing mm. returns. And um, but it was fantastic. I learned so much. Actually, when you look back at it, thinking the idea that I was allowed, because I prepared my own car, that I was allowed to prepare the car that I was then driving on a Wait, racetrack. Whoa. I mean, that, pff, ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I know I must have been an annoying child, but for my parents to allow me to do that was, you know, anyway. Um, I was, the, so, the, and, 
then what I did was I got into, you know, got into business, got into work and grew up and learned mm -hmm. about a number of things. And one of which, one of the things you learn in business, of course, is you take a problem that's kind of insurmountable or too big to eat in one mouthful and you break it into pieces, mm -hmm. right? And you, and so I started doing some kart racing for fun in the Philippines back in the mid nineties. I was doing TV at the time. Yeah. And, oh, better than I'd ever been. And then I bought a Caterham 7 and raced it in the UK and was actually quite good. And oh, so then of course the horizon of what you might do goes away. Oh, if I can do this and win races, then maybe. And I, because I'd learned how to break things down, I'd learned, you know, get a better team, get more money, get better prepared, and, you know, all of these things. And which I'd never, so at that point, it, quite soon, I thought, well, Le Mans could be a good ambition to have. I'd been to Le Mans in 87. That was the first time wow. I went to the 24 hours of Le Mans. And it was a fantastic race, and Porsche won the, it. The group seater, um, wasn't it? Yeah, it was absolutely. In fact, the book's here on the shelf. It's got the Jaguar on it. I don't know why it's got the Jaguar, because I think it was a big deal about Jaguar trying to win Le Mans, but it was Porsche that uh -huh. won it. Um, I've got the model down there somewhere. But anyway, um, so I went to Le Mans, and uh, I thought I could, do, oh yeah, I could do Le Mans. And then, the, and then the critical part was that the Carrera Cup happened in Asia, started in 2003. Mm. A great guy called Ian Geeky was hired by Porsche to put it together and run it. And I knew Ian. And actually, again, Peter Windsor said, that's what you should do. Because selling Matthew Marsh as some bloke off the telly who's done a couple of Formula Ford races and won a kart race in the Philippines isn't going to be very impressive. But if you go out and you sell Porsche, the Porsche mm. Carrera Cup, you can be involved in the blah, 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 blah. You're selling association with that brand and a well-run championship, Formula One support races, et cetera, et cetera. And you just happen, and plus you, you know, yeah. it's like that. And uh, that was critical. And um, very lucky to win the championship in 04. Um, because, again, like people like Peter and all the people I've met through the journalism work, you know, you, you by osmosis, right, you learn mm. things. And I learned also, I mean, just silly things. Peter and I would go to Grand Prix together as journalists. And the rule that we quickly came to, to together was, no more than two people for dinner. Uh -huh. Because if it's two of you for dinner, like if it was the three of us at Grand Prix, I'd say, mm, it's already one too many. Because one of you is going to forget your wallet. The other one's going to, you know, <laughs> just five minutes, I'm on a conference call. Do you know what I mean? Everything becomes complicated. Whereas when there's two people, and it's a, I mean, it's a bad example. A much better example would be understanding that tyres are everything. Mm -hmm. And particularly one-mate championship, you know, it's kind of the critical element is tires. And so understanding how the tires work. And because I was working in Formula One, I was around the Michelin guys. I spent a lot of time and asking questions and writing notes and da, 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 da. And it gave me that, I think, an advantage over other drivers who had more talent than I did and therefore maybe relied more on their talent than on trying to overcome the deficiency, which is what I was having to do. So, um, yeah, and then but that was the springboard because I'd won a championship. And it's like going to, you know, getting a degree at university or some other kind of <laughs> certification you know you you can then use that to, to to sell the next thing except you're the only one who gets the degree over here but well, what's interesting <laughs> is uh, i've never quite heard the story of any other broadcaster adding their credibility to their work while they are a broadcaster so that, that that's a bit of a first have you heard of anyone else like that ever before matthew because that that is a unique story in a way no yeah, t again, totally by chance. I didn't mean it to happen that way. Oh, come on. Um, you, you can brag about it and say it was part of El Plan. Oh, yes. It was exactly El Plan, yeah. <laughs> Very good. You can add the visionary tactic. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, but but that's yeah. crazy how, how it all panned out. And, and then after Porsche, 
There was Le Monde, there was Daytona. Well, 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 I just love listening to Matthew. And I, I actually love listening to him so much that we ended up recording a second part of this episode as well. But this second part that's going to come up on the Voices of F1 series is a bit different to this one. In fact, in that one, it's a must listen if you are in love with the world of sponsorships and brandings, especially in the world of Formula One, because Matthew... He founded the agency J... I mean, not, not JMI. He worked with JMI, which is Zach Brown's marketing agency. But he founded Ecurie Drapeau Jean, which is a motorsport consultancy that helps out sponsors market their brand in the world of motorsport. And he's made sure to connect deals like NTT and McLaren, Epson and Mercedes, and so much more. And we sit down with Matthew to discuss those deals and just how do they go about and what is it that goes into making a good deal. Well... To listen to that one, stay tuned and subscribe to the Inside Line F1 podcast. Leave us a good rating if you like this episode. And we shall be back with not just the second part of Voices of F1 with Matthew Marsh, but also another special episode with Steve Slater, the voice of Formula One in Asia, coming up rather soon. See you then, folks. Thank you for listening.